Please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 136. The 136th Psalm. Psalm 136. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 136. These are the words of God. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. O give thanks to the God of gods, for His mercy endures forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His mercy endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His mercy endures forever. To Him by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever, and brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever, with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, for his mercy endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his mercy endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his mercy endures forever, and slew famous kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his mercy endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his mercy endures forever. Who remembered us in our lowly estate, for his mercy endures forever and rescued us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever. Who gives fo food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. <clears throat> Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we've already asked that you would enlighten our minds and illuminate and speak to our hearts through your word. We ask you, Father, to give us the grace, uh, and uh, most especially, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our, my heart would always be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul, uh, toward the end of his earthly ministry, wrote a letter to his true son in the faith, Timothy. We have this letter as 2 Timothy. And toward the end of that letter, Paul gave Timothy a charge. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul wrote this. 
I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Paul was calling upon Timothy to remember something. He was calling upon God to be his witness. He was calling on God to be Timothy's witness. That the charge that Paul was about to give him was so important that he even reminded Timothy that God is a God who will judge all men. And what was so important that Paul gave this charge reminding Timothy of the potential judgment if he did not do what he was about to be exhorted to do. Paul wrote, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Preach the word. Paul's charge to Timothy was that he should, at every time and every moment and every season of life, to take every opportunity to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. But we may ask ourselves, when is the word of God out of season? Well, never. God's word is always in season, always effective for convincing, rebuking, and exhorting. But there are times when God's word is more opportune, maybe we might say more in season than at other times. When the current of men's thoughts are thinking about what God directly addresses in Scripture. There are times, perhaps even inadvertently, when men are thinking about the things of God. We see this at Christmas time, when men are thinking about Christ and his birth. Our culture, maybe less so now than in times past, was geared up to be centered around Christ and his nativity. We see this also at Easter, when men are thinking about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We are now entering into such a time when the current of men's thoughts are on, or soon will be on, Thanksgiving. People will be thinking about the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. You will hear greetings and partings saying, Happy Thanksgiving. Coworkers and folks in the marketplace will be wishing each other a happy Thanksgiving or exhorting you to enjoy the holiday. So taking advantage of this in-season opportunity, we will be looking at Thanksgiving this morning. But we might start off by asking a question. What is Thanksgiving? There are so many terms in our Christian life that we hear all the time, and we assume that everybody knows what we're talking about. And I think that may be true with Thanksgiving. So what is Thanksgiving? Well, Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which I consider to be the gold standard for English Dictionary, defines Thanksgiving as this. The act of rendering thanks or expressing gratitude for favors or mercies. 
It is an expression of gratitude, an acknowledgement made to express a sense of favor or kindness received. And gratitude is a feeling or sentiment excited by kindness. Thanks are the expression of that sentiment. So thanksgiving is an expression of gratitude, is the outworking of an emotion excited by kindness received. It is where we are so moved by the generosity of others, by the goodwill of others, the benevolence of others, the cheerful gratification of our wishes by others, the supplying of our wants, the meeting of our needs in times of distress. And all of these things give expression to the kindness which we have received. That expression is one of joy and gladness and exhilaration. Thanksgiving is an expression of gratitude, an acknowledgement made to express a sense of, uh, for the favor or kindness which we have received. It is almost like an emotional outburst. We are, and we are commanded to be thankful. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was a command for us to offer thank sacrifices of thanksgiving. In fact, all of the sacrifices were commanded to be accompanied by thanksgiving. This could be summed up what we read in Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. And we are commanded to come into God's presence with thanksgiving. Not only in public worship, but in other senses. In worship, God reminds us in Psalm 95 too, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. And in our singing, we are also commanded to do so with thanksgiving. In Psalm 147.7 we read, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp of our God. But even in prayer, we are commanded to come into his presence with thanksgiving. Philippians 4.6 says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. In fact, as we've just been reminded in our New Testament reading, we're supposed to have a general disposition of thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, we read, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Incidentally, just an aside, you may have asked yourself or said this to yourself, if only I would know the will of God for me. And oftentimes we think, well, what God would have us to do? Right here, in everything, give thanks. But what if you don't feel or have the feeling of gratitude? What if you don't feel thankful? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever heard others say that? Thankful? What do I have to be thankful for? Well, chances are you have heard that, perhaps even from loved ones at a Thanksgiving dinner. And we may exhort them by pointing to the very verses that we've just reviewed, noting that God commands us to be thankful. And their response may be, 
How can we have a command to feel a certain way? After all, aren't emotions uncontrollable? Don't they just come and go uh, as whatever causes them to come and go? Well, the fact of the matter is, maybe our emotions are out of control, but in God's economy, he expects us to be in control. Self-control, after all, is a fruit of the Spirit. And we are to display self-control, even in our emotions. And not only that, God commands us to feel all sorts of things. For example, we have a command to love. We have a command to love one another. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. Wives are commanded to love their husbands and their children. We have a command to love our neighbors, even our enemies. And we also have a command to be joyful in all circumstances, even in terrible times. James writes, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you meet various kinds of trials. In our day and age, we have a culture that is emotionally driven. Feelings are out of control, or perhaps more appropriately, people are being controlled by their emotions, rather than controlling their emotions. And these emotions drive their thinking. It drives their wills, their volition, so that what they think, what they want or desire, or how they are motivated are all driven by their feelings or how they feel. But the Bible teaches us the exact opposite. Instead of feeling driving our thinking, our thinking drives our wills and our feeling. Right thinking drives right willing, and that drives right emotions. We are commanded to think God's thoughts after him, to do his will, to love what he loves, and hate what he hates. So when it comes to thanksgiving, when it comes to that outburst or that expression of gratitude, in order to understand how we should feel this way and feel that way always, we have to start with right thinking. Or in my line of work, we would say, garbage in, garbage out. If we're not thinking the right way, we cannot possibly feel the right way. If we are thinking the wrong thoughts, if we are driven by leaning on our own understanding, we will not want to give thanks and we will not feel like giving thanks. But our text today gives us a model for right thinking. Or what we should think that will drive our wills and our emotions to give thanks. Our text can be broken into two main sections on how we should think in such a way as to give thanks. It provides or focuses on a biblical framework for being in a constant disposition of giving thanks. And this main biblical framework for giving thanks is based on two things. One, who God is. We see that in verses 1 through 3. Second, on what he has done. We see this in verses 5 through 25. And particularly, the psalmist outlines what he has done in creation, redemption and salvation, and his provision or providential care. So let us take a look at our text here in verse 1. 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. This is a very familiar statement to us. And we may have said it often, God is good. Amen? The psalm opens with a bold declaration of the reason to give thanks. God is good. The Hebrew word that we have translated for us as thanks is an odd word, etymologically speaking. The Hebrew word that is translated thanks literally means to cast with the hand. It is like throwing a stone and conveys the idea of lifting up something like a stone and throwing it with our hands upheld. In this sense, it shouldn't surprise us if we spoke Hebrew or spoke Hebrew today to day, because we would remember that when we give thanks, we are glorifying God. And the Hebrew word that which we translate glory literally means weight. God's glory is heavy. It is weighty. It has substance. And then when we lift up praises to God in glory, when we're lifting up this weight and casting it up in thanksgiving, we are lifting our hands in thanksgiving and praise. This sentiment, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, is repeated three times in the first three verses and gives us a general statement of God's character, of who he is. O oh, give thanks to the Lord for who he is. He is good. And this is in the widest sense of the word. The word binds up ideas of beauty, best, bountiful, cheerful, bestowing favor and kindness. This may call to mind the ironic blessing in number six, that the favor of God would be upon us. It may call to your mind also Deuteronomy 28, that long list of blessings. Or perhaps also Ephesians 1, where we read that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And that overflowingly so. His blessings flow down on us like rain. Our cup is not just full, it overflows. But the psalmist goes on and says, Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. He is the supreme being. All other creatures, no matter how glorious, all pale in comparison to him. His might, his power, his majesty, and all of his excellent perfections are bound up in this, that he is the God of gods. But not only that, he is the great lawgiver, the great um, king that superintends and manages his created order. For the psalmist says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. He is king of kings and lords of, lord of lords. He is all-powerful and merciful. His perfect wisdom he displays in his judgments. He and he alone is able to wisely manage the dispensation of his providence and the outworking of the affairs of men. We are commanded to give thanks to the Lord just for being God. Just for being who he is. For his character. And I think this is captured in what was announced to Moses in Exodus 34. You remember the, the scene here where Moses asked to see God's face. 
And God said, no man can see my face, lest he die. But he promised to show Moses his glory. And as God passed by, we read this, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means, by no means clearing the guilty. That's our God. Merciful, gracious, patient, abounding in goodness and truth, perfect in execution of justice. This is what I think Paul is referring to in that long list of sins in Romans 1. You remember the list? There's sin upon sin, going from bad to worse. And the last charge that Paul says that sinful man has is, nor were they thankful. In fact, I would say that this long list in Romans 1 is the high cost of unthankfulness. If man will not thank God and not render thanks to God, he will think and do the things listed in Romans 1. And we can see this played out in real time in our culture. All of those sins, all of them, are on display. And we have long since given up on our public profession of thanksgiving to God. That is the high cost of thankfulness. Every creature, every man, every woman should give thanks to the Lord for who he is. And if we focus just on that, we would have more than enough for all eternity to praise and thank God. But the psalmist tells us that there is more. He references that we should give thanks to God for what he has done. And we see this transition in verse 4. To him alone does great wonders. All that follows that he describes in creation from verses 5 through 9 and redemption and salvation in verses 10 through 15 and his providential care in verses 16 through 22 are all focused on what God has done. These great wonders. The first is that we should give thanks to the Lord for what he has done in creation. In verses 5 through 9, we read this. For to him who by wisdom made the heavens, to him who laid out the foundation of the earth, sorry, to him who laid out the earth above the waters, to him who made great lights, the sun to rule by day, and the moon and stars to rule by night. We are so affected in our culture by the materialist superstition. And by what that, that I mean that all of this just happened. It is one gigantic cosmic accident. That we are the outworking of the fizzing of all these molecules banging around. And if we think that, who would we give thanks to for such a thing? That oftentimes we're so affected by this that even we who live in this world who are redeemed by Christ forget to thank God for the creation. We live in a creation that works. It is a created order. All things happen according to the determinate plan of Christ. 
the determined plan of God. Think about all the things that we just take for granted. We plant seeds, we water them, they grow and they bear fruit. We have oxygen to breathe because when we breathe out CO2, plants turn it into oxygen. We live in a creation where dead plants and animals from the flood turn into something that we can use to power our cars. And then there are all sorts of surprises that God has planted in his created order. On our way in today, we passed by cotton, I mean yesterday, we passed by cotton fields. <coughs> Somebody figured out that we could spin that into thread and make clothes. Or somebody figured out that if you take what comes out of a cow and freeze it and add a little sugar to it, you can have ice cream. And there are myriads and myriads and myriads of things in this created order that we don't even pay attention to that God has put out for us. And think about this. We have great telescopes now that we can look up into heaven and see the galaxies displayed in all of their majesty and beauty. And we can see the mighty power of God given to us in stars and black holes and so forth. And then we can, with powerful microscopes, look into the minute of creation and see the building blocks of the atomic structure in our cells. And they're like little machines all operating together. This is what our God has done for us. This is the created order. But our psalmist calls to attention that we can actually see without power. We have sun, we have the moon, and we have the stars. And he alludes to the seasons, the rain, frost, snow, winds, all of which point to his creative power. We should ever give thanks to him who has provided us such a creation. And his hands prepared it all. But the psalmist continues. And he says we should give thanks to God in what he has done in redemption and salvation. And we see this in verses 10 through 15, which we read, to him who struck Egypt in their firstborn and brought out Israel from among them with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. We have described for us here both temporal and eternal redemption and salvation. The psalmist laid out for us the temporal salvation from bondage in Egypt. We know that that points to our eternal salvation in Christ. We see in verse 10 the striking of the, down to the firstborn of Egypt. This calls to mind to us the Passover, where God instructed the blood of the Lamb to be placed upon the doorposts of the tents of the house of Israel so that the destroyer would pass over the children of Israel. And we know that those of us who now live on the other side of the cross, that that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Passover. He is the Passover lamb. That the firstborn of Egypt 
was killed to show the preeminence of the firstborn of God. Remember what God instructed Moses to say to go into Pharaoh. Let Israel go. Israel is my firstborn. From Exodus 4.22. And we know also that this points to the true Israel of God. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who, as Paul told us, is the firstborn of creation. And he brought out Israel from amongst them. This was the great deliverance of his people with a strong hand and outstretched arm. And through signs and wonders and a magnificent, supernatural defeat of the pretensions of men. But not only that, we know that the word of God says that there, are, there was an angelic system behind this. And that he put to shame the powers and principalities behind men. And this all points to the saving work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That he, with a mighty hand and outstretched arms, purchased our salvation by defeating death by dying. By defeating Satan by his mighty works on the cross, which was gloriously ratified by the resurrection. And that he parted the Red Sea and led Israel to pass in the midst of the divided waters. Have you ever considered how often God puts men into a spot like that? Between Pharaoh and the Red Sea, the people of God may have been tempted not to trust God. But Moses said, Behold the salvation of the Lord. And the waters opened up, and the people of Israel passed through on dry ground. Another miracle. And we know that the writer of the book of Hebrews says that this points to our baptism. That we too will pass through the waters and enter into the salvation which has been prepared for us. And that we should do so by faith. That we enter into that great salvation through the waters of baptism. And this is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. But this also calls the mind that we have redemption through his blood. That we have uh, that we are, rather, his purchased possession. Think of all the wonderful things that that means. You may call to mind Ephesians chapter 1. In the first 14 verses write, I think, one of the most breathtaking description of who we really are. Not only are we blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we were chosen from the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame in him. That we were predestined to the adoption as sons and daughters of God. That we have the Holy Spirit of promise as our guarantee of what Christ started in us, he will carry to completion. And that we have an inheritance with Christ and all to the praise of his glory. It's absolutely breathtaking. All of this is bound up in our psalm. That the, the people of the old covenant received by faith. But we also see here that God not only remembers then, but also now in our lowly estate. We see that in verse 23, who remembered us in our lowly estate. And this may call to mind that exclamation of great joy that Mary gave, that we call the Magnificat, after she was informed by the angel that she would bear our Savior. She said, 
the Lord has remembered the lowly estate of his people. He knows our condition. He knows we're not able to save ourselves. And he has rescued us from our enemies, both temporal and spiritual. He is our Redeemer and our Savior. So not only should we give thanks to him for what he has done in creation, but also salvation and redemption. But the psalmist goes on and says that we should give thanks to him what he's done in his providential care for us and for his people, which we read in verses 16 through 22. To him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and slew famous kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave, and gave their land as a heritage, or inheritance, a heritage to Israel, his servant. There are many who might say, well, this is just part of the redemption and salvation, and I gladly concede that it is. But it is the outworking of that redemption and salvation. It's the providential care to which God has given this to us. First, he provides for them in the wilderness. That's a very simple statement. What is bound up in that? When we often hear of the wilderness, we think of that faithless generation who died. And I think it's good and right so for us to do that. But what also happened in that wilderness period? Well, God supernaturally fed his people. You remember that morning by morning while they were in the wilderness, from Sunday through Thursday, they were able to, to gather manna that appeared on the ground. And they were able to use it to make it into bread and sustain them in the wilderness. And that if somebody got a little too greedy and grabbed extra for the next day, it would rot. All except on Friday, where they were commanded to grab twice as much, and supernaturally, it would be fine for Saturday, for the Sabbath. And we know that that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bread of heaven. Not only that, he gave them water in waterless places. And then when he struck the rock, the flinty rock, and the water came out, that that was pointing to Christ, that he sustained them. But not only their physical needs, remember what else happened in the wilderness. He taught them his word. He described his character to them, the nature of who he is, and what he expected of them in his law. As our brother mentioned today in the Christian Instruction Hour, Redemption came first. The law came next. He also protected them. And not only did he do it then, he's been doing it for us ever since. As I think verse 25 says, he who gives food to all flesh, not only is he still feeding us, now, and by the way, I would say, remember the, the part I made about the created order? where plants, uh, you plant seeds and it grows, that is a miracle. I can't explain it. I know it happens. And God does that all the days of our lives. But not only this, but in this particular thing, the psalmist is calling us to remember that God is the promise-keeping God. 
That the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises of an inheritance and the land, a promise for the rest, for the people of God, from their enemies, is seen in the conquest of the land of Canaan, which we know was initiated with the defeat of Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. And remember that these men were giants, the very type of men that the spies, the faithless spies, were so afraid of, all but Joshua and Caleb. And that they were representatives of the powers and principalities that were um, at work in the world then, who were no match for the king of glory, the Lord of hosts, the Lord mighty in battle. And then the people of God went in and plundered those strong men's house. They inherited houses they did not build, vineyards they did not plant, and fields that they did not plow, all as an inheritance from God. And we also have this great promise that the true Joshua, Yeshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, has won us that victory. And that we too have an inheritance. Back to Ephesians 1. That inheritance is described for us. Ephesians 1, 11, In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. All things, including all we have just read. All things, according to the counsel of his will, is preparing that inheritance for us. Paul continues that we who first trusted in Christ should also be the praise of his glory and in him you also trusted. And that's not only the Ephesians, that's us. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We have an inheritance before us. The writer of the book of Hebrews says there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the Holy Spirit is our guarantee until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And we can see this played out in church history, can we not? Think of what happened after the resurrection. The strong man is bound. And the strong man's house is being plundered. Think about how many Gentile believers there were before the resurrection. That those people who were under the power of the devil, under the sway of the world and the flesh, who were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. How many Gentile believers are there now? Billions and billions since then. Well, the psalmist concludes this psalm with verse 26. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. He opens the psalm with a command for us to give thanks and he closes it with a command to give thanks. And in between, he gives us a breakdown that our thanksgiving is rooted in the nature and character of God. It is rooted in the works that he has done. It is not rooted in whether or not we have material blessing. It is not rooted in our own affections or emotions. 
and that a public profession of thanksgiving to God is not a harvest festival, nor is it the prep day for the kickoff of the Christmas purchasing season. No, it's a day where we, and thanksgiving for, what God, for who God is and for what he has done, that we may stand before him. And then it makes sense that we can be thankful in every condition. We can be thankful in plenty or in want. We can be thankful in trials or at rest or peace. And we can be thankful in all conditions of life, in all seasons of life, because our thanksgiving is rooted in our God for who he is and what he has done. But let's take a look at our refrain. It was repeated 26 times for us. I wonder if God was trying to tell us something. We know repetition in Hebrew is an underscore of importance. It's sort of like bold type. For his mercy endures forever. The Hebrew word translated mercy means kindness. Some translations, and you may have seen it, translate it as loving kindness. And I think that's right, because bound up in this word is unmerited favor. It's kindness received, but not deserved. That's why I think mercy is a pretty good translation for that. Why does God do what he does for his people? For his mercy endures forever. Remember what we read back in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. And we can relate to us in our own histories, our own testimonies of his grace. He has remembered our lowly estate. He has rescued us from our enemies and has promised us not only do we already have the victory, but that we will gain victory over our enemies, particularly sin. And this should give us not only a great reason for encouragement, but also a great reason for thanksgiving. And we know that he will do this for us. Not only has he done it in the past, because our God is the same today as he was yesterday, and he will be tomorrow. And this should give us a refreshed sense of thanksgiving. So as we gather with loved ones, family and friends this coming Thursday, and I hope you have a tradition where they go around the table and ask what you are thankful for, you can answer, I am thankful for who God is and what he has done. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you, O Lord, and praise you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for the splendor of a whole creation. We thank you for the glorious salvation which we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you for the providential care that you have given us all the days of our lives, even to this day. We pray, Father, that as we part from this place, that you will never allow us to forget these things. But having them imprinted on our hearts, we may rejoice in all that you have provided. And we do this with great thanksgiving. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.